Please open your Bibles to Psalm 98, Psalm 98. You'll find the uh, notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. Uh, you'll find the text, if you don't have a Bible, in the back of the notes. I'd like to begin our time this morning by uh, reading Psalm 98, and then we will have a word of prayer, and we will dive in. Psalm 98. A Psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with uprightness and the peoples with equity. Lord God, as we study this song you have given to us, um, we pray that as we understand uh, the truths it declares, the praise it demands, that our hearts would well up with an authentic shout of joy, that, that what this ca- psalm calls for would be produced in our hearts and become the overflow of our mouths. Help us to see your glory in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this psalm, um, sometimes referred to as the orphan psalm, because of its title being unique in the Psalter. This is the only psalm with this particular title, a psalm or a melody, um, possibly given because of the extreme focus on worship. We are in a section of the psalm, Psalm 93 to Psalm 100, that focus on the Lord Yahweh as king. Last week we looked at Psalm 97 as it focused on the Lord's coming judgment of the earth. And that, again, is a similar topic to what we'll be looking at towards the end of this psalm. The difference is being, last week, we saw both the dour note and the joyous note. That the Lord's second coming, his judgment, will be a cause of joy for some, and relief, encouragement, and for others, dread, sorrow, and shame. All those dour notes are completely absent from this psalm. This psalm focuses exclusively on the response of joy, response of celebration, the response of worship. And it develops this theme of the Lord as king, the Lord reigning, the Lord judging. The psalm breaks up nicely into three sections. We see that within the text itself with an inclusio. An inclusio is the, the literal term, literary term for a bookend. When, when similar phrases occur at the beginning, the end of a section, it, it quadrants it off. And so if you look at verse 4 and verse 6, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. And how does verse 6 end? Make a joyful noise before the Lord, before the King, the Lord. And so that tells us then that verses 4 through 6 are a unit. And if verses 4 through 6 are a unit, then verses 1 to 3, verses 7 through 9 are a unit. 
And there's a development of thought and progression of praise through these three units. Um, You can look at it in two ways. One, different aspects of God are praised. Different elements of his administration and his rule are put forward for worship. The other thing you'll see is the broadening audience of those who are called upon to praise. The song moves towards a culmination. In the first strophe, the first stanza, God's people, Israel, are called to worship the Lord. While the nations stand by as a witness, but silent. Then in the second section, the nations, all the earth is invited to worship. And finally, in the third stanza, all creation, the trees, the the oceans, the rivers. It is a cacophony of global praise. So we'll dive in with this psalm at the first section. O praise the victorious Savior. O praise the victorious Savior. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now the development of this section is first the call, the exhortation to worship. We see that in the first verse. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And then the rest of the stanza gives us explanation. Why? On what basis? What are we praising the Lord for? So let's look at it first, the exhortation. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And this opening call is really the theme of the entire psalm. The entire psalm, case by case, calls upon first God's people, then all people's and then all creation to praise God. That's the focus. Worship is your blank, is the central theme of this psalm. Worship is the central theme of this psalm. It gets gets very focused, especially in verses 5 through 6. Sing, praise the Lord, the lyre, the lyre and the sound of melody with the trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise for the King, the Lord. And then calling on all creation, the seas, the rivers, to praise God. And that phrase, a new song, when you see that, and that's, that's a, uh, a phrase repeated a number of times in the Psalter, what it's calling upon is a fresh, there's, there's your blank, a new song is a fresh response to who God is and to what he has done. It's, it's see again. Look again, behold again. We're going to look at some of the elements of the Exodus. And what this psalm would be saying is, look at that again. Respond anew to what God has done. It's to guard us from the, the, the familiarity that breeds contempt, the, the lack of wonder because we've seen it and heard it again and again. No, look afresh, sing a new song for God. That, that's the exhortation. And then what follows are four points of explanation. Why? What reason is there to to look afresh, to to praise anew the Lord? Well, first, because the Lord has worked saving miracles. The Lord has worked saving miracles. And that word for salvation is the dominant theme of this paragraph. It occurs three times. You see it first in uh, verse 1. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. Verse 3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation 
of our God. That's why this stands. I put the blank at the top. Oh, praise the victorious Savior. God's salvation is front and center here. And the salvation that's envisioned is not the salvation you and I so often sing about, at least not in the first instance. When we think of salvation, we think of the cross. We think of Christ's atonement for sins on our behalf. We think of his sacrificial death satisfying God's wrath at our sin. And that is the ultimate picture, the ultimate act of salvation. But the word used for salvation here can also mean victory. In fact, I think some of your translations even have victory in verse 1. His right hand and his holy arm have worked victory for him. I believe some translations have it that way. And the focus here is a deliverance, and it's a broader focus than simply dealing with sin. In fact, I would argue and I try to show you that I think what's envisioned here is the exodus from Egypt, God's triumph over Egypt, which is a salvation of his people, redeeming them from bondage to slavery, which pictures the ultimate and final salvation that we receive from sin. And God here is is depicted as a victorious warrior. That's your your second focus. The Lord has worked saving miracles. The the reference to miracles is seen in the, the marvelous things. That's our reference to miracles. And he's pictured as a divine warrior who has been victorious. So you see that in the first verse. His, he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And the strength of a warrior is in their arm. It's what they would use to throw a spear, fight with a javelin or a sword. And this is the language of the Exodus. Let me, let me show you. Um, in Exodus 2... Um, No, in Exodus 3, sorry, the Lord says to Moses in 3.20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders, same word used for marvelous things, wonders, that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And then in the song of Moses, after they crossed the Red Sea, listen to the emphasis in Exodus 15, verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, Glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Verse 16, terror and dread fell upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So this is, I think, the language of the Exodus. God works a victorious salvation and deliverance. He he is seen as triumphing over the would-be gods of the nations. Um, That's similar to the theme we saw last week in Psalm 97, where the false gods of the nations are called upon to praise him. Because in in the plagues visited upon Egypt, one by one, the would-be powers of their gods are thwarted as the, the Lord God proves he's not just a territorial deity, which is how oftentimes they would view things back in that day, that there's a God of this land and a God of this land. But by in Egypt, controlling the Nile, turning it to blood, controlling the, the locusts and the frogs and the sun and darkness. The Lord proves he is not just a God in Israel, not just a God in Canaan, but he is God everywhere. And he defeats his foes. He defeats the, 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 the nation of, of the world at that time, the strongest nation, Egypt. The Lord defeats them. 
And so he's, this is focusing on a deliverance and a victory, a salvation that is also a victory. That, that's the focus and the movement. The Lord God delivers his people and he works these saving miracles, but he also works a mighty victory. He, he demonstrates he is supreme. That's the idea. So we are to look afresh upon that and stand in awe and wonder that the God we serve is the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He's not one of many, but he is supreme above and over all. And that is seen clearly in the exodus from Egypt. When you just think of the many wonders, the many mighty miracles and acts the Lord did to save his people and to show his supremacy over all. Another reason the psalm gives to praise the Lord is seen in verse 3. He remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. So not only is the exodus a triumph over the gods of Egypt, a triumph over Pharaoh and his armies, it's also an act of loving kindness. What God does in one single act is he both demonstrates his utter supremacy, his utter greatness, and... In the same act, he remembers his faithfulness and he redeems his people. Um, This is, again, the language of Exodus. This is how the story in Exodus begins. If you read through the story, what sets the the plot in motion is the harsh treatment of Israel. They cry out to God and then listen to this language in Exodus 2, 23 to 25. Because remember, Exodus 3 is where Moses encounters the burning bush. So this is the end of chapter 2, right before the Lord God begins to act in the narrative During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now listen to this. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So that's the language of how this began. The Lord God hears their cry and he remembers the covenant. And it's not as though he forgot. The point is, because he made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, the Lord God is aware of their descendants, their offspring, what he promised he would do, and moved by his compassion for them, moved by his love for them, he delivers them from slavery in Egypt. He saves them. He makes them his sons and daughters. He makes Israel his firstborn out of Egypt calling them, and so that we are to praise him for that. So in the Exodus, we see his might, the strength of his arm. In the Exodus, we see his mighty miracles, but we also see his covenant love and his faithfulness, which brings us to point four. Praise him with this fresh look of awe and wonder, this fresh response to who he is. And and again, I I think it's important that he says this because it is so easy for us. Yeah, yeah, we know the story of the Exodus. We did the flannel graph when we were in children's church. But just stop and consider with awe and wonder the mighty deeds God did in redeeming his people from Egypt and how in one and the same act he demonstrated his utter supremacy, his utter sovereignty, his utter power and his faithfulness, and his steadfast love, and his compassion. This brings us finally to the fourth point. He saved Israel in the sight of the nations. And this is the progression. So initially, Israel is called upon to praise God, those people whom God has redeemed. But we see that the redemption that God worked, he worked publicly. That's focused on twice. Verse 2, 
The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So in the first stanza, Israel is called to respond to the Lord's saving of them. And we notice that the nations are witnesses to this. One of the reasons we learn why God redeemed Israel out of Egypt with such cataclysmic shock and awe was so that the surrounding nations also might know. The Lord could have redeemed them in a quieter manner. But then, turn to Joshua chapter 2. Had the Lord done that, then nations around would not have heard, and people like Rahab would not have come to faith. God's demonstration of his power and his might is precisely what the Lord used to bring Rahab to faith. This is remarkable. Joshua chapter 2. We'll see the effect of the Lord working his mighty, strong arm, his miracles in the presence of the nations. This is Rahab's confession to the spies. She takes them in. And in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, we read, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord... Somehow she knows his name. That, that all caps there, that's the name God first reveals at the burning bush. And yet Rahab has heard the covenant name of this God. She's heard of Yahweh. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then she pleads with them to swear covenant faithfulness to her as she casts her lot in with them. She betrays her people. And she receives the terrorists as it would be, as they would have viewed them. Because she has now put her loyalty with the God of the Bible and with his people against her own tribe and people. So turn back to Psalm 98. Let's, let's summarize then what we see here in the first stanza. Why are we to sing praises to the Lord? Why are we to look afresh with new awe, new wonder, with a fresh response? Because the Lord God works powerful, mighty acts in salvation and in triumph of himself. And in one of the same acts, he demonstrates his supremacy, his triumph over all would-be adversaries. And in that same powerful display, he remembers his steadfast love. He redeems his people. He's faithful to the house of Israel. And he does this in front of a global audience. All the nations are witness. That's, that's why we should worship the Lord God. This is on a global stage now. Oh, praise the victorious Savior. Oh, praise the victorious Savior. So that's the first stanza. And now the movement from that first stanza broadens out to invite 
all the nations and all peoples to praise him. We saw how that already spread to Rahab. God has not done his works of salvation on a global stage simply to be seen, but as an implicit invitation for the nations, for the Gentiles, like Rahab, to cast their lot with him, to receive him as their king. Which brings us point to, oh, praise the worldwide king. Oh, praise the worldwide king. I mentioned before that uh, this second section has a bookend. Uh, Verse 4 and verse 6, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Verse 6, make a joyful noise before the king. So if the first stanza focused on God as a mighty warrior and savior, the second stanza focuses on the Lord as king. And And the flow of the logic is this. He has defeated his enemies. He has established his throne. He has established his supremacy. And as such, as the only man left standing, if it if you would use the analogy, he demonstrates he is not just the king of the Israelites, he is the king of all nations. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, who all the earth. Break forth into joyous praise, songs and sing praise. Sing praise to the Lord of the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with the trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king the Lord. And so, again, we have the exhortation, make a joyful noise, and forms that inclusio that I referenced. And we're given two titles, to the Lord in the first instance, and that when you see that, that name, that's the emphasis on God's covenant-keeping nature. He reveals it to Moses in Exodus 3. I'll read it to you. Exodus 3, 14 to 15, God said to Moses, Moses had, of course, asked, who shall I say sent me? Here's the first time God reveals his divine name. In Scripture, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, there's that I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So it's in connection to his faithfulness to the promises he made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has this name. So the focus of God's covenant name is the name he reveals above himself to those he's in a covenant of salvation with. It's in connection to his promise-keeping nature, his faithful nature. So the focus here is make a joyful noise to the Lord who keeps covenant, who's Faithful to his word and to his promises. But the second time the exhortation is given, there's a slight shift. Verse 6, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. And so we're coupling together his his faithful covenant-keeping nature. that He makes covenants, he keeps covenants, he redeems his people. And also his kingship. I think this is what sets this psalm within this section because the focus of Psalms 93 to 100 are God as king. And so the development of thought is in the first stanza, he, he smashed his enemies. In the first stanza, he made conquest of the greatest power on the earth at that time, Egypt, easily squashing them and their puny gods. And as the one with ultimate power, as the one who rules and who works mighty deeds, is it not then clear, this is the king of not just Israel, but of the world. 
He's not limited by space. He's not limited by geography. He's king in Canaan. He's king in Egypt. He's king in Martinsdale. That's the focus. And so what we see here is an invitation for the nations to worship God. This is, this is a missionary psalm in a sense. The Jews of Jesus' day thought God only cared for them. They thought the only way the Gentiles could be saved is to become Israelites. But Psalms like this show us God's desire and plan and heart to save all peoples, to invite all peoples to worship him. As all the tongues and all the tribes and all the peoples who have just witnessed his salvation at the end of verse 3 are now called upon to respond in praise to the Lord. Praise to the king. To the king who rules over all peoples. The king who rules over all peoples. Look at Psalm 90, um, 99 verse 1. How does the very next psalm begin? The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Look at Psalm 96 verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. This is one of the unifying themes of this section. Is the Lord God is unique. He's not one God of many. He is Lord of lords, King of kings. He is the only living God. And Psalm 98 invites all who would, all who would, to rejoice in him, to shout for joy in him. And then the language breaks down the various ways to praise the Lord. All peoples, explanation, here's your blank, all peoples are called upon to worship the king. Because he is king of all peoples, all peoples then are called upon to worship the king. Worship the king. Look at Psalm 96, verse 7 again. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So Psalm 98, the movement begins with God triumphing over all other nations and powers and little g-gods. Triumphing and saving his people, keeping his covenant, demonstrating his power and strength, working his mighty deeds. And on that basis, his people are to praise him. And now, whereas the nations in the first stanza are witnesses to this silently, now they're called upon to join in the praise. They're called upon to enter the worship. Sing praise to the Lord of the lyre. With the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King the Lord. One other thing to note here is, I believe, um, the language employed here suggests a coronation. Suggests a coronation. I can't be dogmatic on this point, um, but I think it fits the theme of the psalm. And from the coronation examples we have in Scripture, many of the elements are present. Let me read a, a few of them to you. Specifically, that horn, the shofar, is connected with the coronation or the celebration of a new king. First Kings one thirty nine. Then Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet. And all the people said, Long live King Solomon. Second Kings 9.13. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment, put it under him on bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu as king. And then Probably even most clearly, 2 Kings 11, 12 to 14. 
Then he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands, which in verse 8 is what the rivers are called upon to do of our psalm. They clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Then Athaliah heard the noise of the guards and all the people. She went to the house of the Lord. And when she looked there, the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeteers beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So I I can't be dogmatic, but we do have here that conglomeration of praise, the shofar being blown, hands clapping, and given the progression, I, I hear in this, a coronation, a celebration of a newly arrived king. He's triumphed over his enemies, and now the invitation to the nations is welcome him as king, rejoice in him as king. And the language evokes, I think, those coronation ceremonies from First Kings, which simply puts it this way. To all tribes and all people, if, if you will have this God as your king, if you will submit yourself to his rule, if you will welcome it, turning from your gods, turning from what you've trusted in. If you will turn to him, say, you will be my king. You will be my God. You are invited to worship him. You are welcome in this joy. That is the uh, emphasis here of this second strophe. Oh, praise the worldwide king. Praise the worldwide king. There's also language used um, in Zechariah 9.9, speaking of the messianic king coming. I'll read that to you. Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Because we learn as we read through Scripture and as more Scripture is written, that this king who is to come has a clearer identity, don't we? We learn of a coming king whose name is Jesus. We learn of a conquering king who is coming, inviting all the nations to be his subjects. But that's later on in the book. As for now, in Psalm 98, the nations are invited to worship the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, as king. Okay, let's move now on to our final stanza. We've seen, O praise the victorious Savior, O praise the worldwide king, and our third stanza, O praise the righteous judge. Oh, praise the righteous judge. And again, as I've mentioned earlier, the scope of the invitation broadens further still. In our first stanza, it's the Lord's redeemed, those he has saved who are called upon to rejoice. In the second stanza, it's, it's those of the nations who have witnessed his saving acts and his righteousness. And now, let the sea roar and all that fills it the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So the exhortation here is that all the created order would rejoice. Now, of course, this is poetic language. Rivers don't have hands. The concept is now not just image bearers of God, but but rocks, trees, oceans, lakes, rivers, every bit of creation would join in the celebration and the praise of God. Not because he's a savior, 
not because he's a king, but here the focus is because he comes to judge the earth. He comes to set things right on earth. And again, that's the progression. We have, we have a victorious warrior who destroys all of his competitors. He destroys all of his foes. He triumphs in the fray, and he alone is standing. He has proven himself that he is king. The people are then called upon to herald him as king, to receive him as king, to worship him as king. And what does this king do upon receiving his throne? He enters into judgment. That's the movement. And that judgment will be of the whole earth. Exhortation that all the created order would rejoice. And I want to pause here and point something out that is important. Um, Oftentimes we can focus on Christianity. Focusing solely on eternity. Meaning uh, we can view Christianity as simply about how to not go to hell and how to go to heaven when you die. That, that's important truth. But it is a shallow understanding of the faith. What that, if we f- simply focus on that, if Christianity is simply the faith, the religion of how one can escape damnation and how one can go to heaven when they die, what can very quickly start to happen is we can start to view this earth, this world, as unimportant. I mean, it's all going to burn after all. The former creation will pass away. He'll roll it up like a scroll. There'll be a new heavens. There'll be a new earth. And so this world, this place that we live can become viewed as very unimportant. We don't understand why, why people get concerned about the environment. We don't get, understand why people get concerned about recycling. It's, just, it's not what matters, right? We can just focus on that. This psalm and other places in Scripture like it remind us that God cares about this world. The whole logic is, is rivers are rejoicing because a judge will come to set things right. The hills will sing for joy because a judge is coming to set the world to rights and to judge the people with equity. And I would remind you that even though this world is temporary, and even though the Lord will destroy this present earth, He cares about it. It pleases him. In Genesis 1, he made it, and it was good. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And I'm I'm highlighting this not only because it's here in this psalm, but because um, as we approach a series on responding to, interacting with um, some of the current cultural issues, especially related around um, abortion and transgenderism and gay marriage, things like that. One of the important points I'm going to make there is there's a radical and gross devaluing of the created order that's involved. And so I want to even begin now in planting seeds of the importance, the goodness of this creation. The Lord Jesus was raised bodily, and one of the implications of his bodily resurrection is that in raising Jesus bodily and not purely spiritually, it's God's affirmation that he will fix what is wrong, not just with us and sin, but also with the created order. Listen to the language of Romans 8, verse 18 and following. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he's talking about the resurrection. When the Lord returns, we'll be resurrected. And our corruptible bodies will put on incorruption. There's a corollary implication that comes with that. 
It's not simply our bodies that will be resurrected and redeemed, but all of creation will be set to rights. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. You're starting to get some inkling of an idea why the hills and the rivers might be excited that a sovereign and good king is coming to set things right, to judge. Creation is longing with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. We live in a fallen world, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pangs of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. So there's the logic that the earth, back in Psalm 98, is called upon to rejoice at the coming king because he will set things right, because he will judge with equity and righteousness, and because in that context, this creation subjected to futility will be redeemed and restored. God is a fan of this created world. He made it. He made it for his glory. It has fallen. It has been broken. It will be restored, even as we ourselves will be resurrected and redeemed. And this psalm makes it clear. God has a plan for the earth. He has a plan. It involves rejoicing. It involves glory. It involves joy. Um, and, and the future is simply not about simply us being whisked off to heaven, but about a God who comes back to earth and set things right. He sets things right. Exhortation that all the created order would rejoice. Okay, here are blanks. The material world was made for God's glory, and the material world is good. The material world is good. That's another mistake we can sometimes make. You are not a person in a body. Your body is you. Your spirit is you. You are a spirit, flesh, being, but your body is you. It's not you in a body. Um, you, this is Jeremy. It's not the fullness of Jeremy, but this is, this is Jeremy. And, and Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 6, we don't have time to go there, but the importance of that doctrine as it relates to people engaging in sexual sin. Okay, I'll give you the short version. In 1 Corinthians 6, um, you can read this. There were people who were arguing that sleeping with prostitutes was okay because, after all, it's just my body. My body is broken. My body's fallen. And my body has these desires. And I want a cheeseburger. I get a cheeseburger. I want a glass of water. I have a glass of water. I want something else. I have that. It's no big deal. One day, praise the Lord, I'll be whisked away to glory and this body will be left behind and I won't have to deal with this disgusting appetites. But until then, what do you do? That was the rationale Paul had to combat in 1 Corinthians 6. And the way he combats it is by saying, no, the body is not for morality, but for the Lord. The Lord is for the body. The Lord raised Jesus, and he'll raise you too. He cares about your body. He cares about this material world. We'll, we'll deal with some more of that in, in the coming weeks. So now let's get to the explanation for why the created order would be invited to so rejoice. Explanation. All creation is under God's rule. That's the implication. He's the God of the whole world. And so all of his subjects and all of his dominion rightly should respond in joy. All of his subjects ought to rejoice. And so it's the only fitting response. And since all creation is under God's rule, what will this king do when he comes? He will enter into judgment. He will enter into judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. And again, this is, this is the hope of this section of the Psalms. We saw that in Psalm 97. Look at the end of Psalm 96. It's the same focus here. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. 
You know, we, we read about atrocities in the world around us. We, we groan under the pain of sin. We, we see the pain and the suffering caused by both the natural order and sickness and what I call non-moral evil. And we also see the pain and suffering caused, caused by moral evil, by people wronging each other. And we are to rejoice in the knowledge and the confidence and the hope that there will come a day when a king returns to earth who will judge and sort that out, put an end to it, right all wrongs. And in that hope, we are to rejoice. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the peoples with equity. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, I want to, at the end here, um, apply some more information that we get in the New Testament. Because for us, we know which member of the Godhead will do this judging. Which member of the Godhead will, will enter into judgment. Well, Jesus tells us in John 5, 22 and 23, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And that then becomes the basis of the apostolic preaching of the cross. We may not link this type of thought with evangelism. The Apostle Paul did. Listen to him at Mars Hill. Apostle Paul at Mars Hill warns the Greeks, warns his hearers, saying, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is it who will come? What conquering king who has worked a great salvation will come? and be heralded as king, and enter into judgment, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and everyone in this room is invited to turn and make him your king, become his subject, rejoice in the knowledge that he is coming, and look forward to his coming judgment. Because we will all, according to 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil is focused on the Lord Jesus returning to judge. And that's that same progression we see in the book of Revelation. He shows up on his white horse, the armies of the world array, and what does he do? He defeats his foes. The, the warrior king triumphs. He has written on his thigh, king of kings, lord of lords, and then what does he do when he enters? He enters into judgment, the white throne judgment. It's the same movement. And so we know with even greater clarity how this will play out, what is depicted in Psalm 98. Now there's one other thing I'd point out to you is I call the worship team up for a closing song. This psalm is the basis of a very, very popular hymn. You probably don't know of it as a hymn. You think of it as a Christmas carol. Isaac Watts based Joy to the World almost exclusively on Psalm 98. I'm not entirely sure how Joy to the World became associated with Christmas. But as we sing it as our closing number, I think you will see its connection with this text. And I think with the psalm that calls upon us to worship. The only way we can end our service is by obeying it. Let us rejoice. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Please stand as we sing. <laughs>